podcast is hosted by a Presbyterian pastor named Robert Cunningham. And I need to be honest with you, I've never heard of him. I've never heard this podcast before. So I don't have any kind of context for it. A friend of mine had suggested I listen to it, and I thought it was just excellent. And so he, he, he runs up, you know, I'm sure it's a weekly podcast, but his last three episodes were on the topic of racism in America. And I think he did an exceptional job in it of critiquing um, both the, uh, the current movement um, afoot on uh, that's uh, challenging racism in America. Right? He critiques the movement, but he also critiques the church. He critiques us for our pretty significant, not only negligence, but complicit, complicity, complicitness, what's the word, um, for being complicit in racism. So it's kind of an equal opportunity critic, um, and he, he makes the warning that if you, if you listen to the, you, some of you might listen to the first podcast and love it, he says, but stick around and listen to the second one. Others of you might have a hard time getting through the first one, um, but really love the second. And I think what we want to try to do, what I would advocate for, is that we might really take seriously the totality of his message even if one half or another half resonates more strongly with you. So I'm curious here, we're into, this is going to kind of shape how, we, how this morning goes. How many of you have heard at least the first episode of this podcast? Okay, good. So what is that, 40% of you maybe? Okay, so that's a good number, but it does mean that we're going to need to do a, a fair bit of recapping. And I hope that as we go through this, that you might, that this conversation today might be stimulating enough to like entice you to come in and to listen to it. So if you want to jot it down or if you just want to memorize this real quick or whatever, I, we don't have an easy vehicle to like email this, this group, but the name of the podcast is Every Square Inch and the last three episodes on racism in America are what you're looking for. And by the way, this class, this our own Sunday school here, is online at chsroanoke.com. And so if you wonder what it was that we talked about, you go back and you listen to the first couple minutes of this hour, then you can find it there. But Every Square Inch by Robert Cunningham, Racism in America. And I think this morning what I'll try to do is we'll just limit ourselves to the first episode. And I don't honestly know if this is going to be like, you know, three, three episodes, three weeks, or three episodes, eight weeks. We'll just, we'll just see how it goes. But what I, what I want to do, what I, what I hope that we might be able to model doing and, and maybe kind of spawn is, more, is, is a dialogue. I think listening to his podcast is great, um, but better than just listening is having a conversation over the dinner table with your life group, with your friends, pondering, chewing on, what is he saying that I really need to grapple with? What, 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 what books should I read? What should I think about? Um, and I would echo, and, and though normally, okay, here's the strange thing. Normally I like to exegete Bible rather than exegete somebody's podcast, right? So it's a little bit of a strange thing, but I think he does a very good job of bringing a biblical worldview to a really important topic. So we will be in some sense exegeting Robert Cunningham's thoughts, although he's not our, he's not our infallible guide to anything. I do happen to think, though, that he's really pretty much on point. But here's, the, here's his big, well, can you guys, those of you that have seen it, what is his opening challenge to us? Do you remember what his kind of like, what is the imperative that he lays before us in, on this topic? Okay, say it, say it louder. Into this moment. Follow Jesus into this moment. Kelly? And make sure it's that's it, right? And make, and it's very important, and make sure it's Jesus you're following. What he's saying is, what's happening right now in America, this is a moment of profound unrest, of great distress, of great, there's a great dialogue, and there's 
There's one side and there's another side and there's lots of complexity to this. And he's saying, listen, enter in, enter in. You, this is not a moment to be missed. You need to follow Jesus into this moment because what's happening is real. What's happening matters. What's happening is significant that God cares about these things. But as Kelly said, make sure it's Jesus you're following because there's always a counterfeit, right? The fact that there is a real problem doesn't, it doesn't, from, okay, there is a real problem, but it doesn't follow from that that the solution being proffered is the right solution. And so he's saying, yes, 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 look at this, notice this. Your zeal for this is right, your zeal for this is good, but there's some really, th- some very important things that you need to be mindful of and thoughtful of. And then he kind of provides a kind of a little bit more of a critique. Now you, you may, maybe you know this, maybe this, you know this how the world works, but very often um, culture is shaped in a long, slow process by ideas that rise not in the popular setting, but in the academy. So somewhere, some, you know, someplace in some, you know, secular elite university in the northeast of America, ideas are being batted around. And you're not going to hear about them for 15 years. And you're not going to believe them for 25 years. And they're not going to shape the culture for 35 years. But it's happening right now. This is how, this is how life works. Ideas are percolate in the academic world and then eventually they kind of spill out. And so what he, what, what Cunningham does, I think that's very helpful is he goes back and he says, let's take a look at what, how did we get to this moment right now? Because there are ideas being put forward that are really valuable and important for you to know. And in the midst of this stew of ideas, there's a lot of stuff that's true. There's meaningful, accurate um, criticisms being leveled against our country that we really need to grapple with. But mixed in there are things that aren't true and mixed in there are solutions that would actually be more devastating than the, than the disease. And so what he tries to do is give us this kind of whole framework. And we will, what, I think what we'll do today, especially given the numbers that have or haven't listened to it, is we'll, we'll try to walk through as much of it as we can and try to recall what is it, um, what is this history? What is this movement from academic thought that's flowing into like popular cultural mainstream thought? And then let's chew on what that means and what do we see how do we understand it so in a word what's this what's this root seed right for this moot the, the, uh, let me do it like this he uh, okay there's a couple of sequences we do we'll follow Robert Cunningham's sequence although there's multiple ways that we could do this there is a problem there something is wrong in a country um, that literally imported African slaves on ships in chains, right? There's some, there is something wrong in our country. Certainly there was something wrong in our country and there may be debate about how much that wrongness still has tendrils reaching into the present day. We can debate that and that'd probably be a, a worthwhile conversation. But I think we can probably begin with the common idea that slavery was a great evil. Can we, can, can we find a least common ground at that point? And then there's a debate on like how far have we gone in correcting this? There's something wrong, okay? But there's a particular perspective on this evil and the tendrils that reach into the present day um, that is really driving the agenda of the moment. And what what does uh, Cunningham argue is the core idea of the proffered solution right now? In a in a in a in terms of a sociological ideological framework, Michael. Marxism, that's the right answer. So what he does, he gives us a very quick snapshot of Marxism. Does anybody have more training in Marxism and studying that, whether from a sociological or an economic perspective? Anybody have training on that that you could give a quick two-minute summary of Marxism beyond what Cunningham does? 
There might be some here that know more about it than I do. Okay, so here's the, I'll just give you the, I'll give you the, the, the essence of it is that Marx recognized that there's a problem in the world, okay? Every worldview, let me, let me do this. Every worldview has to answer four basic questions. Where did we come from? What's wrong? How do we fix it? And how's the world gonna end? Okay, this is a, this is a generic broad thing. Where do we come from? What's wrong? How do we fix it? How's the story gonna end? The Christian answer to that is creation. The world was made by a sovereign God. What happened? Why is everything so messed up? Because of the fall. There was a moment where sin entered the world and everything was corrupted. How do we fix it? Our only hope is that the Son of God would come to earth, become a man, die on a cross, atone for our sin, to repair the thing that's broken in us and give us the resources to walk with him as we were supposed to. How's it going to end? Redemption, restoration. All things are made right. All things being made new. The story's going to end really well. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration is the Christian answer to that. Marxism looks at the world and they, just like any worldview, they answer the question. They just answer the question differently. And where we would say that original sin, the corruption of mankind, the, what we call the fall, is the core problem that the world is populated with sinners, Marxism has a substitute answer for that question. And what is the Marxist answer to what's wrong with the world? Okay, yes, and you guys are, it's hard to get them all at the same time, but power is the problem, that there are people that are in power, and you're saying, Stuart, almost like an oligarchy, there's a handful of people that are in power, and therefore, every society throughout the world is ordered in such a way that some people gather power and use their power to exploit and oppress the minority to accomplish their purposes. Not necessarily, not necessarily a racial minority, but like the few grab power builds society in such a way that everybody else is kept down. And therefore, if the problem is power in the hands of the few, if that's creation fall, if that's what's wrong, then what is the Marxist solution to that? Redistribute the power, right? And so we say, instead, we've got a, a few people have too much power, and so we want to end that, and we want to, it's like the ultimate of kind of spreading out everybody's equal, everything from, Marx's famous quote is, um, uh, uh, how does it go, according to his ability, from, how does that go? I'm, yes, each. That's right. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. And it is this grand redistribution. Now, in, in classic Marxism, it's more through the lens of money, of economics. And, of course, money and power are not disassociated with each other. We're going to redistribute this and into and to everybody gets it. And we've tried this many times. Many societies have tried this. And what do we tend to find happens when the great Marxist experiment, when the, when the Communist Manifesto is attempted to be lived out? How does it go? That's right. So the problem is the power is concentrated in the hands of a few, and the solution to that is power concentrated in the hands of a different few, right? And this happens every time, and not only concentrated, but more concentrated than it was in the first place with, with, with greater resulting evil. And that's because Marx didn't dig deep enough. He's right, of course, right? We, we've, we've had a said, we say all the time, that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. That's true. But so he didn't go deep enough to say, well, why is that? And the Christian answer to that is, well, it's deeper than that. The problem isn't power. The problem is me. The problem is not just that my systems are corrupted, but that I am corrupted. And if you just replace sinful leaders 
with sinful leaders, we're, we're, not, we're no better off. And in fact, we tend to be worse off because we've eradicated the systems that have been designed to constrain evil in the world. Okay? So far, so good. Is this basic familiar? You, you might have studied this in high school. Maybe you read a book about this. Okay? So here's your basic Marxist theory. Now, the next step in this progression uh, that, that Cunningham walks us through is what? What, what do we go from, from essentially Marxism into what? What's the next stage in the thought progression? Communism. Yeah, well, that's still, communism would still be like that first level here. But he, he moves it from the economic theory to the social theory. So you might call it, so, some, some might call it social Marxism or cultural Marxism. And now as we, as we take Marxism, and it didn't, it's never worked as a theory economically to explain the exploitation of people. But so now it's been reapplied into uh, uh, kind of more social structures and looking at how does this work. And so if we leave in the realm of social structures, if we're leaving money behind, it's no longer the concentration of money, but it's power in what form? Do you remember what Cunningham says? He uses a couple of technical terms. Yeah, Michael, we're loud. Like a social narrative. Social narrative, okay? And this is really important. And this is going to begin to kind of, you might begin to see this. So we talk about narrative. We talk about the story. Life is about story. Human beings organize their lives around stories. If you see a picture of something, you're going to necessarily kind of put it, into, put it into a story. We teach history as a story. All of life has this very strong story thing. And there is a story of America. There is a story of your family. There is a story of the church. There's a stories, narratives of the lens by which we understand ourselves. And we understand the things that we've come up through. We're, we're story makers, we're story believers, okay? And that's all good and fine, but as we know, whoever wins the war right, writes the history, right? And so the story that has been written about America is right now being challenged and decried as, a, as, a, as a, not only a false story, but an evil story that perpetuates its own evil. And so in, within the realm of cultural Marxism or social Marxism or these things, um, there is a... There is a a vantage point on the world that says it's not just the money that needs to move hands, but it is the, the cultural narrative needs to be torn down and replaced with another one. It's very much the same ideas that Marx would do economically are being done at a cultural level. And in fact, that's what is largely driving a lot of what we're seeing right now is that people are saying, I don't like the story that you're telling. I don't believe the story. I want to replace it with a new one that I believe is more accurate, that I believe is a superior story. And while others are hearing, are watching their story being taken from them and they're fighting to get it back. That's a, that, that whole concept of replacing what, Robert uh, Cunningham uses this term hegemony, which is probably not a word that flows off your tongue, but can anybody have a working definition of, of a hegemony, what that means? This is actually really, really important. What's, what is hegemonic power? Yeah, Tommy? Dominant uh, power. It's, a, it's based off of um, belief systems, ideologies. Yeah, so really anything that's hegemonic is, is something that has dominance. Kelly, are you going to say? I was just going to say, I thought he was using that synonymously with the prevailing cultural ideology. Yes. He, so cultural ideology. Collection of ideas is the hegemony. Yeah, so he, it's interesting. So he uses hegemony, hegemony, hegemony um, as, you're right, he uses it synonymous for the narrative. But he's a little bit appropriating it in that sense. Normal, just under a normal, like five years ago, we were talking about 
what are hegemonic powers? It just means somebody that's dominating somebody else. So if you, it means that you're totally in charge. But he's using it, in the, and, and he's, not, he's not unique in this, but he's using it in the sense that whoever tells the story wins the war, right? This is why um, whoever owns the academy, if you, if you get in charge of the academy, if you get in charge of media, if you get in charge of Hollywood, then you're the one that writes the story. Your, your worldview prevails. And so what there is is not, every system has the official power. So maybe the president of the United States or the governor or the, you know, whoever has power. But really, whoever is telling the story that captures the hearts of the people, those are the people that are actually in charge. Because if you believe, if you're shaped by, if you're influenced by um, the air that you breathe, the very water that you swim in, that's, that's, more, that's more what we mean by hegemony. It's less that I've got the guns and the tanks and more that I've already won your heart because I shape the way that you think about things. Okay? So the argument here is that, and I think it's valid, is that if you've got this uh, hegemonic power overseeing things, well, once you, once you own the story, then you can tell, make the story tell everything you want. And there's a huge movement afoot that says, yes, we've got to replace the old stories with a new story, with a, with a better story, a more accurate story that captures what's going on in the world. Okay? So we've gone from Marxism to either social or cultural Marxism, which is sometimes known as critical theory because it's critiquing these things. And then into the final stage that Cunningham walks us through, what's the, what's the third and final kind of step in this process? Critical race theory, excellent, you were paying attention. So critical race theory basically takes all of this and then it applies it more specifically. So critical race theory is simply a more specific version of critical theory. And just as we could say, and I think should say, that Karl Marx got some things right. Like, Karl Marx is not exactly an American hero. And so when we talk about, it's, it's very tempting to take anybody that you don't like and then to hiss whenever they walk on stage and they're all bad. But the reality is, you guys, very little in the world is all bad and very little is all good. There are things that Marx says that are true, and there are disastrous consequences that have come every time his ideas have been applied, right? In the same way, critical theory, well, it's true. I think we should absolutely grant that there's such a thing as hegemonic powers. There's, there are dominant narratives, and they could be true or false. That's, that's fair. And then when it comes to critical race theory, once again, yes, is it true? Is it true that we have used race in the United States to preserve the power of some at the expense of others. Yes, it's true, right? These, so there are things that are true, and yet there are grave errors woven in throughout this, and what we're trying to do is begin to become aware of them that we might parse them out. Yeah, John? Isn't that basically the way Satan has always worked? Yeah. Kind of a mixture of truth and lie. Absolutely. Yeah. So the question is, isn't that the way Satan always works? So that he mixes the truth with the lie. And that's, and it's not just demonic, but it's every good liar who's ever lived knows how to mix things in with truth with things that are error. And sometimes in very persuasive and compelling ways that it's very hard not to know what's this and what's that. Right? Okay. So, how we, so really right, right now we're doing, trying to get a recap. Does this make sense? And if you go back and you listen to it, he's going to give you a, a fuller, I'm, I'm kind of abbreviating so we'll have time to discuss it, but we go from Marxism to culture, to uh, uh, critical theory to critical race theory, and right, right now at the critical race theory, this is really, these ideas that have lived in the academic towers for some times, spilled onto Main Street with, with in, incredible force and with incredible persuasive power really just in the last several months. 
So what is, you tell me, I'd love you guys to try to rebuild it. What is the current narrative, the new narrative that is being offered as an explanation for the United States of America? And we can maybe kind of get it in pieces. What's the, what's the, what's the storyline that's being told, which probably, be careful of this, right? It's probably going to contain a lot of truth. And it's probably going to contain some things that are not true. But let's hear, what, how's the story being presented, Stuart? 'll slave okay so let's pause right here so um, if I were to add, we're, gonna, we're gonna you probably didn't hear him and that's good because I'm going to pregame it when did the United States begin okay there's a lot of answers but what's like the answer like the normal answer right is 1776 right we would say it's 1776 Declaration of Independence that's the birthday of America now you could get into like well we didn't win the war until or prior to that the colonies were but generally speaking we're going to say 1776 is when the United States begins. And there's a movement afoot called the 1619 Project. Is, am I saying that right? Project 1619 Project. And I'm not honestly particularly well read on this, but um, the 1619 Project is explicitly, overtly trying to replace the 1776 story with another story. It's very, it's, this stuff is not all that subtle, okay? We're going to say that, that the story that you've always told about America is not this story. This is the story. And what happened? In, so say it real loud, Stuart. What happened in 1619? Yes. Right. So see, we, so in 1619 is when slavery comes to the new world. And the, according to this narrative, that is really the essence of America is not the Declaration of Independence 1776. The core of what we are is not that. The core of what we are is a people who import and enslave people. The, 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 hegem the white supremacy hegemony that says we will dominate and oppress others for the benefit of ourselves, that is truly who we are. Okay? Now, you gotta pause. Okay, this is, like I said, this is gonna be a mixture of truth and lies of stuff in here because that actually happened. Like, like, they're not making that up. That's a real thing. And we have to grapple with the profound wickedness of that. But we also have to ask the question are we fundamentally a people who 1776 wrote a Declaration of Independence to which we did not live up? but ever since then have been moving towards with increasing approximation of it? Or are we fundamentally a people that we don't, we, never, we don't care about that, we never cared about that. Things are essentially just as bad as they ever were and they always will be until there is a revolution that overthrows it. To see how we beginning, we have two, I want you to see the stories. One is we read the fact that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence probably aided by a slave, which has an irony that's just mind-boggling, right? But have we have, are we growing into, have we grown into, do we intend to fully grow into all of the ideals espoused there? Or was that a joke and this is, 1619 is who we really are. It's two competing storylines. Kelly, have I moved, gone too far? Okay, Jennifer? There was another theme, and I don't know if you're going to get to that, because that was very surprising to me, that... 
1619 date, there was already slavery in this continent that the um, Native Tribal. Americans, Tribal. tribals, there was tribals. The thing that really struck me is you can't give sinners power. It will never go well. Right. And that because we're sinners, anyone who has power is going to do the same thing. And that's why Marxism doesn't work. So I was very sobered to know that, that there was already tribal fighting going on um, with, and, and slavery from that. That's it's different kind of slavery. It wasn't chattel slavery. Yes. Slavery, I mean, the Israelites were slaves. I mean, slavery uh -huh. is the nature of sin, I think. Yes, and so there's a, okay, and I see a whole bunch of hands, so I'll do Let me just very briefly, yes, it is certainly the case that slavery did not begin in 1619, right? People groups have oppressed other people groups for all of time, right? It is always the case, and Marx is right, right? People in power use their power to improve themselves at the expense of others. This is true. Now, it's true. He can't answer why. He doesn't know why. We know it's true because people are sinners, and that's, the, that's really the core of the thing. And that's where the, we, don't, we don't fix society at the level of fixing society. You can only fix society at the level of fixing human beings. But it gets, it's more complicated than that. Sometimes the Christian answer to that is too simplistic and doesn't work. But yes, slavery has existed forever. But it's also true that something new happened um, around the 16, 1700s. A new version of slavery got in. But we might, we'll probably get to that in a subsequent week. But, but yes, slavery's been around for a long time. Eric? Um, like I, I just was gonna tag on with what Stuart was saying because I think that you, you know the question you asked is what is the basically what is the new um, what is the challenging story you know that, that that's yeah and, and I do think that like sixteen nineteen absolutely I think that's uh, like part of it but I think where it's being where it's continued on if I were to try to you know look through the lens of someone who is trying to advocate for that narrative, I think they would say that, that a certain, uh, that there is a certain person in our nation today that is the, the bourgeoisie, the, you know, the, the, the Marxist oppressor. The, I think they were called the bourgeoisie, I believe. Um, and he describes that person, I think, in the first, in one of them. But he basically said, like, because he, he described as not um, not fulfilling any of the requirements to basically like, right. to be sure. You might remember what uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. But basically what, what I think goes along with what Stuart was saying is that I, I do think that to continue forward from not just the, hey, our country really started in 1619 thing, but that in 2020, that there is a bourgeoisie right. that it is... Person. I, again, I can't remember all those. Yeah, I can, I, can, I can recap that for you. So let, let, me, let me recap this, and then Patrick will we'll go to you too. So what Eric's referring to is another kind of term from the academy that's kind of spilling into the main street known as intersectionality. And intersectionality is the idea that things, we are, that inter, the things intersect. That it's, it's, you can't simply describe me as white. That's true. I am white. But it is also true that I'm male. And I'm not just white and male, but I'm a white male Christian. I'm not just a white male Christian, but a white male Christian heterosexual. And we, could, we could go on through. And there are overlaps. So I am, I'm a member of the group of the Caucasian people. I'm a member of the group of the uh, male people. I'm a member of the group of the, you know, the, the pick a thing, whatever, 
whatever your, whatever your subgroup is. And in each one of these frameworks, there's probably somebody who has more power than the other. So the classic understanding of this and what's being you know, said is that if you are white, you have more power than someone who's non-white. If you are male, you have more power than someone who's female. If you're heterosexual, you have more power than someone who is homosexual. If you're cisgender, which might be a term you don't even know, which means you're not transgender, then you've got more, more cultural power than someone who's transgender. And so as these things stack up, if you're a white, male, Christian, heterosexual, cisgender, tall person, then... You're the, you're the top of the pyramid. Maybe older. Right? I don't know. Who's, who's better off, older or young? I don't know about that. Older are. Many times they're white women. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. It could be, right? But so, we, so, there's this, so there's these intersections of oppression. And therefore, um, within this framework, oppression of one is the oppression of all. And so you don't merely advocate for ending one hegemonic structure, but all of it. Right? And so there, so there means... Uh, you, might, you might find some, what might seem to you to be strange bedfellows, um, but certainly, is, you know, the oppression of one is an oppression of all, and so all these things are getting thrown off. I see your hand, but hang on one second, because I told Patrick, you got to give him a shot. I think that uh, it's more than, than a racial issue. It's more of a haves and have-nots. And the blacks happen to be the, the ones that were brought over, but it could have been any other minority type group because they were subservient to the ones that had the power. That's, that's yep. While it's boiled into a, a black-white issue, it's more of a people that have something and those that don't. That's right, although it's not incidental that it's people of African descent uh, that are out of power when it's people of African descent that were literally brought over in cargo holds and chains, right? So Presumably, if uh, in the 17th century, if it was in vogue to, you know, imprison and import people from East Asia, then that we might have a similar situation there because the reality of those atrocities have long multi-generational implications, right? And so that's part of what we're dealing with. There's, there's an awful lot here that's, that's real and we have to grapple with. Okay, uh, wait, Jesse in a second. Yeah, John. You're not tall enough, though. See, you're so close, right? Right? And, 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 and many, many people feel like I'm supposedly the one in power, but I'm not that powerful. And perhaps you know people that, are, that have every alternate side of, that, of those structures who are more, have more power than you. And so this can feel very... This can, the people that are supposed to be the oppressors often feel like they're actually oppressed. But I do think we have to say that if we look at this thing at a broad level, if you look at the amount of wealth in white families versus the amount of wealth in black families, the differences are profound, significant. But if I don't have that wealth, then... Right. Then it, doesn't, it, may, it may, not, may not be helping you very much. Okay, yeah. So, Jesse? Um, before we get too far, I just want to make sure that I understand the competing... Is, is, it, is it that blatant? There's no subtlety. Are they really contending, the 1619 group, that things have not gotten any better since the first slaves were brought to America? Um, okay, I, so I don't, I don't, it's never a good idea to straw man anybody and to misrepresent them. But my understanding is that yes, that they, they would say that while the, um, the most overt forms of racism are very different, clearly, right? So we no longer, it's, it's, it's no longer to literally own a human being. So that's different. Nevertheless, 
the underlying story that shapes it all and gave power to it all remains just as intact today as it was in 1619. I think that's what they would say. Now, and many people, Brett and I have had lots, where are you? Brett and I have had conversations because, Brett, do you want to speak to that? Because I know that you, you tend to feel like it's, that nobody thinks what people used to think. Do you want to, sp- you don't need to, but do you want to say anything about that? Sure. Okay, go for it. Mask off. Stand up. And take Stand up. up. Okay, so if you look at the trend of history, uh, probably 200 years ago, there were people who woke up in the morning and said, "Absolutely, white people better than black people in every every possible way." And that, those ideas have systematically been destroyed over time as a as a true way of thinking. Nobody really espouses that. And I think that. The culmination of that was really in the 1930s and 40s when this did become systemic, when, it, when there were countries that actually were founded on the basis that racially and genetically some people are inherently better than others. I think the whole world went to war against that and basically disagreed with it fundamentally. However, I would agree the fact that there are significant um, after effects but I think that those after effects are decreasing. The question is, are they decreasing fast? So. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, Bill. But intersectionality is adding more than race. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, it's got to be kind of, now it's becoming not just that, race. It's becoming more than race, and it's all or none. That's right. And, that, and we haven't talked about that yet. That's right, we, and we will, but there's a lot of, we've got a lot of pieces we want to get through. Okay, one more comment. I saw more hand, and then we'll kind of keep going. Um, I, I just think that with the intersectional stuff, I think that feeds the fire of being able to legitimately, legitimately uh, be offended. And I think then the people that, I think that just, Yes. Okay. And so it is true that the whole concept of intersectionality allows people to layer their victim status such that everything is incredibly prickly and and, and everything that's not in fact offensive, a person can take offense at. That's that's true. But again, and and all of this, I really want to encourage you guys to try to like in all things, we want to we want to know and believe the truth. And sometimes people with whom we disagree know things that we don't know and can help us see things that we can't see. And it is true. Is it not true that on balance, in general, men who have had more power historically have used their power to selfish ends? Have you noticed this? Like this is just true. Doesn't mean that all men have oppressed all women, but on balance, in general, like if you want to just kind of startle yourself, just go watch something from like the 50s. And it'll be, have you done this yet? Like you go back and you watch something from like the good old days and you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe they talk like that. I can't believe there was such a level of demeaning or dismissal of women 
like not that you are all, many of you are alive in the midst of things that we would look, if it happened today, we'd be like, whoa, you're not allowed to say that. And the reason you're not allowed to say it isn't because of the, you know, politically correct police. You're not allowed to say it because it's not true because it's unkind or because it's, it's offensive. And so there are things that are, there, there really are in every little bit of this, there are things that are true, but I think they're being packaged together in ways that are really unhelpful and will ultimately have a, a very destructive end. And just to kind of, but let me just say this now, this maybe is not the right time to put this down, but let me just say a lot, we'll, we'll get to this when we, when, we, when we critique ourselves, but a lot of the stuff that is happening, a lot of the solutions that are being suggested right now are being suggested because when those who had the cultural dominance, the greatest power, the greatest influence, they didn't spend that power very well. Jesus consistently says that the, 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 the kings of the Gentiles, they lord their authority over the others. And then he says, not so with you. For the greatest among you must become the least, right? And so Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't need Marxism to speak into this moment and to call those that have power to say, I gave you power. I put you in positions of authority so that you could serve and bless. And in fact, I gave you the most perfect image of what that looks like when I, as the king of the earth, the king of all things, surrendered my life to a bloody cross. To show you, Peter says he gave us an example. One of the things, not the most important thing, but one of the things that Jesus was doing on the cross was demonstrating this is what leadership looks like. It is seeking the lowest place and the great place of greatest service. And I wouldn't necessarily say that we, the church, has embodied that all that well. And so there's, we need to own that. We'll, we'll get to that in subsequent weeks. Um, but the, the, the solutions being offered, they're being offered for a reason. They're just really bad solutions. Okay, there are a couple of hands. Did you want to say something too? No, I would just, in support of what you said a minute ago, Yeah. Some things you look back, you're like, man, how did anybody get away with that? And the answer would be, well, that was the hege- hegemonic power structure. They got away with it because that was the story that was being told, right? And those, so there's, again, there's, I just really want you to, like, we're going to critique, and we're going to continue the critique, but there's, there's stuff to it. Okay, Brett, and then we'll keep going. I keep lying, but we'll move soon. Yeah, I just wanted to. You're not sure that Robert Cunningham's story is true? Yeah, I'm not sure that it is, that what we are dealing with right now can be, I would say, straw man in such a way. Because I feel like if we believe that, as soon as 
disproved by the fact that it has not worked, because that's still out to be figured, to be determined. It's been tried and has not succeeded so far, but maybe it will in the future. I would say that the reason it should be disproved, and he says this, but I think we get kind of distracted, is that um, it focuses on the wrong problem. That, and and that, that is exactly what he says. He doesn't, he, he, he offers, he, he acknowledges that the Frankfurt School is not affirming Marxism, but is critiquing it and essentially saying that you're trying to explain this in economic terms and that doesn't go deep enough. You've really got to move into the sense of the, the, the cultural narrative, the hegemonic power structure. But so it, it, is, it's an, it is a descendant of it, but it's a, it's, it's a critical descendant, but it is a descendant of it. I totally agree. I don't think it's, it's you, ne, it, you never well serve to like att attack a straw man of, of a thing, but you understand what, what is it really saying? I, I'm in complete agreement with that. And, I, and I'm not, I mean, I didn't study this stuff in school, so it's not as if I've got some super deep knowledge of it. Really what we want to do here is spawn this conversation and encourage you. There's a, in, uh, there are a number of books that you could read on any, any multiple sides of this. And so like to Brett's point, right? Probably, and I've had a number. I mean, you may have heard of this book. I've had a number of friends that have read it. There's a book um, by Beverly D'Angelo called "White Fragility," which is right now the kind of dominant, uh, popular presentation of all these ideas. You could read that for yourself and, and be able to uh, not just hear someone talk about it, but you could actually read what what is she saying? She's she would be very much in support of the ideas that Cunningham is critiquing. Um, and, and of the ideas that I, that I think uh, w that we should view critically. But if you want to go right straight to the source, that'd be a, that'd be a resource you could understand it without getting it filtered through somebody else. Okay? So, Jennifer? I need to maybe push back on one thing of that well thought said thing. He said that sin is not the problem, power is. And I think it's backwards. I think power is not the problem. Sin is, because he says, and I agree with this, that if you give power to sinners, it never ends out right. And it's our sin nature that causes us to abuse power. If we could, Jesus had power, but he never had sin. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No. no and, and I think I, I think Brett would totally agree. Brett's not arguing that power is the problem. Brett is accurately representing the Marxist idea that power is the problem, and therefore power needs to be redistributed. And what we're, what I think the Christian response to that is, oh well, hang on, there's something to that, but you haven't gone deep enough. You haven't gotten to the core thing, and so all you're going to do is trade in one corrupt power system for another corrupt power system, and you've done nothing to fundamentally change the human heart. And absent that. 
Well, there's two, two problems. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll jump to this for the sake of kind of finishing kind of the, 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 the concept of this first, um, first podcast is that he observes there's two problems, okay? Beyond the fact that you're, you've, misdiagnosed the, you've misdiagnosed this whole critical race theory, he argues, has misdiagnosed what's going on in the first place. But even if you get your way, two bad things. There's two flaws. There's two... Two insufficiencies of this. Does anybody remember what they are? Can, can you state what he says are the two flaws, Brett? Yeah, I think one is utopia on earth rather than, than um, utopia in Yeah. So, and the, the words that he uses to summarize it is it's going to be um, unproductive. It's going to be destructive and unproductive. Okay. So let's just talk about this for a second because I think these are really important things. First of all, well, we'll go with what do you want? We'll go destruction first. Okay. If all if the if the current kind of vantage point that is like roiling in the streets comes to pass. He argues that it's, it's destructive because it's ultimately a false gospel, that every issue in the gospel has its mirror approximation, its, its counterfeit. Whereas we would say that the problem, the core problem is original sin, he, they would say the core problem is white supremacy. Where we would say that you must be born again, they would say you must become, you know, woke. Right to be woke, you have new eyes to see with all things, and not only do you see with new eyes, but you, your your wokeness can only be known and demonstrated by your fruit, by your your fruit of wokefulness. And what I think is the most, maybe the most important insight that he has that I that I've I've watched this. Perhaps you have watched this play out, is that in Christianity. This is maybe these, one of the most important things in the gospel is that justification precedes sanctification. That I am a sinner and Jesus speaks over me, imputes to me, credits me with his perfection and his righteousness, and I am righteous. I am transformed. I am cleansed. All of my badness is done away with, and I am now his, and then begins the process by which slowly over years I grow into that which he has declared me to be. I am justified, period, full stop, and thus begins my sanctification. Justification precedes sanctification. But under this kind of framework, and you can watch it play out. I mean, I've literally seen this happen. Um, Sanctification precedes justification, which means once I realize my badness, so begins the endless seasons, the endless efforts to make enough social media posts to acquiesce enough, to curtsy before the, before the new priests of this religion until I am finally, someday, almost, not quite, going to get it, never going to get it, justified. If sanctification precedes justification, then justification is never coming. And that's precisely what we see happening. And all the we, you know, new language entering the vocabulary of virtue signaling, of renouncing of systems, of kneeling before the oppressed persons. These are all attempts to imitate Christianity in this, in this out-of-step sequence. And he says this. Listen, I'm going to just quote him directly. He says, And on and on 
goes the desperate attempt to be absolved of the sin of your oppressive ways by the progressive leaders who are priests of this woke religion and hold the power to forgive. He says, by all means, apologize. By all means, repent. Go to protests. Protest things that are evil. Do it. But, listen to this, beware lest you forsake the gospel for the new self-righteousness that is upon us that is guarded by merciless social justice Pharisees. Unlike the gospel where justification precedes sanctification, sanctification precedes justification. And just like every religion, it will never be enough. This is what's happening. It is destructive. You will never meet the standard. You'll never be able to do it. And I'm, Ruth, Ruth Ellen? Have you ever read Atlas Shrugged? I have read Atlas Shrugged. That's, that's what all this feels like to me and looks like to me. Okay, I've read this years ago. Just connect the dots. That is a book about six inches thick. Yes. What's the connect? What, what, tell me, connect those dots. Well, um, it's, it is the from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And there is this enormous attempt to shift the power structure to what you're talking about, which essentially is the sanctification and not yes and they're evil people uh, okay so if you've never if you ever if, i don't know if you've ever read it, atlas shrugged is incredibly uh you know super high bestseller written by a woman named ann rand and what's interesting ann rand economically could not be any further from a marxist right i mean she's the whole book is a diatribe against collectivism but theologically, she couldn't be any further from us. She's like an avowed atheist. And so it's, she's actually a very interesting split. You might find, you might, I don't know if you would, but you might find you like her economic vision, but you'd want to be pretty careful. Her theological vision is, is an, as antithetical to Christianity as, as Karl Marx's is, you know. Yes, and, and, and John Galt is the great, well, not the hero, but he's the secret hero of the book, yeah. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man or let another man live for the sake of mine. Yeah, so, so what, look at that. So there's this profound individualism which repudiates Marxism, but it also repudiates the gospel, right? And so it's, they're kind of three points of a triangle here. Okay, so you guys, I don't know if you're, I'll give you one example. We do have to move for a moment into the intersectionality concept. If we just kind of shift everything uh, from issues of race to issues of sexuality and transgender, I would encourage you to do this. Go home and Google. If you just want to see the truth of the merciless Pharisees, okay, just go Google J.K. Rowling's letter about transgenderism. I'm sure you'll find it. I don't know what you need to search for. but J.K. Rowling's is um, uh, obviously she's the, the author of Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series, one of the most successful, famous, wealthy Talented. I mean, she's just done it, had an incredible, incredibly successful career, sold like over a billion books. That's hard to do. She's also very liberal. Her worldview is very dissimilar to probably many of yours. She's very much on the left. She is fully in support of transgender rights, fully in support of a whole number of things with which I would disagree. But she also believes that as a biological woman, there's something distinct about her and her experience growing up than a person who has transgendered to becoming a woman. And she would say, they are a woman. They are a real woman. They, and sh they can, she's fully on board with everything. And yet, 
there's nevertheless a distinction between her, between J.K. Rawlings, and this other woman that she would grant as a woman. And the knives are out. I mean, she is, they hate her. Because she has the audacity to say that I will go with you 99% of the way, but there's this little thing. But yeah, but don't you think there's something about being born a woman that is in some regard meaningful or distinct from this? And the answer is you are our enemy. And like, I mean, it, you, you should read about it. You should read her open letter as she describes what it is. That's this. This is a real thing that you can never be enough. You can never curtsy enough. You will never be justified. Your sanctification is an ongoing process. So there's something destructive. Here's Dr. Carl Ellis. He says this. These social religions curve in on themselves increasingly narrow. Um, curve, in, curve in on themselves increasingly narrow and performative orthodoxies. They create ever smaller circles of those considered authentic adherents who represent the truest version of their secular pi- piety. They belittle those who do not perform the corresponding rites properly, and they damn those who reject the ideology altogether. This is Dr. Carl Truman says, if you have an uncritical and unconditional commitment to critical theory, you must realize you have the tiger by the tail. And if at any moment you want to let go of the project, you will find that you and yours are soon to be devoured by it. Justification is unattainable. It's a journey of perpetual repentance. It's a destructive ideology that you will never satisfy. Be careful lest you go down that road. And especially understand that those that are really advocating for this vision, the authors of this, are no friends of Christians. By any means, the Christian worldview the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the reality of our need to find freedom from our own individual corruption. This is nowhere on their list of things they want to see accomplished. They would love nothing more than to see our aspect, our hegemonic power thrown down. And so you really want to be very careful, I think, about allying ourselves and spending our time and our resources with them. Number two, not only is it destructive, but it is unproductive. It can't work. It doesn't have the resources to solve the true problem because they've set their guns on power structures and not on the human heart. The problem, the foundational flaw, is that it's diagnosing symptoms but ignoring the core root. And the gospel of Jesus Christ goes after the core root. Here's Carl Ellis again. He walks it through like this. People are broken sinners. Broken people make broken families. Broken families make broken communities. Broken communities make broken societies. Broken societies make broken systems. And broken systems keep people in bondage. This is all true. That's true. But do you see where he started? He starts with the idea that people are broken sinners. And if we're going to actually solve the great problems, and we should. We should be on the vanguard of this. We, it's the, the, I think the biggest problem with all of the racial unrest in the country is that we didn't start it. We are the people who understand how much a corrupt human heart will oppress others. We, we, we know the core issue. And it is, in my opinion, it is our negligence and our complicitness with this that has created the opportunity for some really unhelpful ideas to come forward. So the solution isn't that we say, well, no, bad, let's go back to the way things were, but that we say, man, we should be in the front. We should be. 
building the multi-ethnic community of people who love God, who walk with Him, who worship Him and adore Him. The problem isn't that there is some dominant class. The problem is that those that have been invited to love and to lead and to serve from a position of lowness and humility have forgotten why we are here. And so there's a lot of work we need to do. Um, I think it's interesting. I've spent my entire life, we've got to stop. I've spent my whole life working with college students. Now I've graduated from 21-year-olds to 22-year-olds. And, uh, and it is interesting to watch how much the young, younger generation is beginning to embrace some really, really unhelpful ideas. And it's troubling to watch. But at a very real level, we've got nobody to thank but ourselves because we have, in some very real ways, been willing to turn a blind eye to things that God hates. And so where we want to move here is into a discussion of uh, what do we do about that? What do we need to do to really love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates? Okay, next week, I'm going to be in Utah, Montana, somewhere between Utah and Montana. Um, and so I won't be here for this discussion, and I haven't actually figured out what I'm going to do about that. If we'll just take a bye week, if anybody else wants to lead the conversation, we could take a bye week and then pick it up. Um, is that best? I don't know if that's the best thing. So maybe, so maybe no Sunday school next week, and then in two weeks we'll continue. But that gives you two weeks to <laughs> go listen to every square inch, Racism in America, one, two, and three. I'd love you to listen to the whole set, um, but we'll be chiefly moving into that second thing. But listen, and then have other conversations. Come here having prepared to, like, Talk about it and think about it, and we'll, we'll see where, it might, where God might lead us as a church. Okay? All right. Have a good Sunday. Are they gonna light Did you oh, uh, do we have ushers to ush? Barbara? Some usher.